Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here. If you've not met me yet, my name is Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Psalm 47. I draw your attention to the word of the Lord as we find it in Psalm 47. We'll be looking at all nine verses this morning. And so I'm going to read that entire psalm. But before I do, I remind you as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. The very word that he has graciously given and preserved throughout the ages so that we now have the privilege of sitting under it this morning. And so may we attend to it, receive it with joy and gladness as he so graciously gives it. Psalm 47 To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us, and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises Sing praises to our King. Sing praises for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us thank him for it. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. And so we ask, Lord, that you would now teach us from your word. For it is our heritage forever and the joy of our hearts. So incline our hearts, we ask, to perform your law forever, even to the end. Uphold us, we pray, according to your promise that we may live And let us not be put to shame in you who are our hope. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's probably not a command of the Lord that you spend much time thinking about or if you talk theology and doctrine and what God's word has to say. I doubt it's a command of the Lord that you often discuss with your friends, but none of that matters. It's a command of God nonetheless. And that command is that again and again, all throughout scripture, 
We are commanded as God's people to sing. We are commanded to praise God from our hearts with our mouths for who God is, for what he's done for us lovingly, graciously in his son. We are commanded again and again to sing. And there's probably passages of scripture that come to your mind even as I say that. But as we open up Psalm 47 this morning, what we're going to see is, yes, we're commanded here as God's people to sing as well. But this command to sing is not just given to us as God's people. You see it right there in verse 1. It's a, a command that's given to all peoples. Whether they're in a covenant relationship, a gracious covenant relationship with the Lord, a part of the covenant community, or not, they are commanded to sing praises to God. And why are they commanded to sing praises to God? Well, hopefully you've already seen this in the text just from the reading of it. It jumps up out at you at multiple places. They are to worship and sing praises to God because he is the king of all the earth. He rules and reigns over all. Nothing is outside of his sovereign rule and reign. And so all peoples must worship. But we're also given then two more reasons why, as a result of God being the king of all the earth, as to why all peoples, ourselves included, should sing praise to God. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Two reasons why we are to praise God. And first of all, we're going to see that we should praise God, for he is the sovereign king who loves his people. He loves his people. That's the emphasis and the focus in verses 1 through 5. How does God make known to the nations that he is the ruler and king of all? And why does he demand that they worship him? Because he shows to all that he loves his people. And so he works as the sovereign king of all on their behalf. So that's the first thing we'll see. Second of all, we'll see that we are to praise God because he is the sovereign king over all who loves the nations. He loves the nations as the sovereign king of all. We'll see that in verses 6 through 9. That this is one of the reasons why all creation, all image bearers of God in particular, are to open their mouths and sing praises to God from their hearts in submission to him. And of course, as always, as we look at these two realities, our eyes will be drawn towards Christ. Because we see that this psalm, as in all psalms, as in all of scripture, it reveals to us him, his person and his work. And my hope and prayer is that the Lord, as we rightly understand Psalm 47, and his spirit applies it to our hearts, then we will open our mouths and sing from our hearts in praise to our glorious God and King. So let's look first then at how we are to praise God since he is the sovereign King who loves his people. Look at the superscript and verse 1 with me. To the choir master, a psalm, of the sons of Korah. So once again, we're still in that section of the Psalms where the sons of Korah are the author. 
And they write this to the choir master to be sung by God's people. For God's people to open their mouths and sing this song to the nations. So really what we have here in Psalm 47, we're going to see this right out the bat, is a call to worship from the lips of God's people to the nations. And we see that right off the bat in verse 1, don't we? Clap your hands, all peoples, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Now this language, if you know your Bible well, should draw us back to other places in the Old Testament where kings were crowned in Israel. Because what would happen when a king was crowned in Israel? Well, there was clapping, and there were songs of joy, they were loud, trumpets were blown, and what would the people say? The people would say, long live the king. And they were swearing their fealty to this newly appointed king by God. You see this happen when Solomon is crowned king. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 39. You also see this happen when Joash, after the kingdom is divided, as he is appointed and anointed king over Judah. We see this very thing happen. And so let me, to refresh your memory... Read 2 Kings 11, verse 12, and you'll see the similarity of the language here. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. And so that's what's happening here. Israel is saying, nations, God is your king. Praise him, worship him, clap your hands, swear fealty to him, and say, long live the king. Now here's the thing, when you're saying, when Israel was saying, or when anyone says, long live the king, you're not just saying, hey, because you have that position of authority, I hope you live a really long life. Because God's anointed you as our king, I hope you have a really long life. No, it's more than that. When you say, long live the king, what you're saying is, I am thankful to God that you have been given as our king, and I submit myself to him, and I submit myself to you. And so, as your loyal subject, I say, may you live a long life. May you rule over us a long time, because I am your loving and faithful subject. That's what you're saying. And remember... This is a call to worship and a call to submit yourself to God as king that's going out to the nations. And so I don't want you to miss the gracious call here. Because what do the enemy nations of God's people deserve? They don't deserve to be brought into the kingdom. They deserve to be slaughtered and destroyed. Isn't that what God sends them out to do? And so what is God, through his people, calling the nations to do? Come and take those hands. Remember, these are unbelievers. Take those hands with which you have broken all of my Ten Commandments in rebellion and sin against me. Take those hands with which I've given you to care for image bearers and you've harmed them instead. Take those hands that you shook in my face in defiance. And bring them together in worship of me and rejoice that I am your king 
and king of all the earth. Do you see the grace? And take those lips that spewed out vile lies and hatred bubbling up from your sinful heart as you curse God and man who bears his image. Now take those lips and from your heart sing praises to me as your God and your king. Do you see the grace? And there's more grace here because they're then given reasons as to why they should open their mouths and sing praises to God. And the first reason that they're given is in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So why are they to submit to Yahweh? This God of all the earth who's revealed himself to Israel as I am that I am. I am the self-existent one who created and sustains all things. I am dependent on nothing. Everything's dependent upon me. You are to worship him. Why? Because he is the most high. You see that in verse 2. And he is the great king over all the earth. Now those two titles are extremely important for us to catch here. So let's let's spend a little time just dwelling on this. It's important that you understand that that first title there, Most High God, is a title that the Canaanites, a Gentile nation, ascribed to one of their many gods, El. They said El is the Most High. He is the Most High God. And so we see this pop up in a place like Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham runs into Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is a priest of who? The Most High God, El. And so the psalmist, knowing this full well, takes that title and says, no, 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 Canaanites, that's not your God, that's our God. Our God is the Most High God. And then second of all, that title, Great King, is a title that the Assyrians would ascribe to their king. Now, their king didn't claim to be God or a God, but he was the human representative on earth of the many gods that they worshiped. And so they would say of their king, he is our great king who mediates between us and the gods. And do you see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, nope, you got that wrong. Our God, Yahweh, is the great king over all the earth. And so do you see what? the psalmist is saying here what he's putting in the mouth of the Israelites to sing to the nations you are to worship our God because he is no mere tribal deity he's not some local God just over this people group or this tribe like the Canaanites would say of their God or the Assyrians would say of their gods no 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 no. he has the right to demand worship and praise from all because he alone is king and God over all. And so they're just making this so abundantly clear. Now, he offers even more proof that God is king over all the earth in verses 3 and 4. So what proof do you have that he's the most high, that he's the great king over all the earth to offer to us? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. 
So what is the psalmist talking about here? What are the people of God singing to the nations? They're saying, you want proof that our God is the great king of all the earth? Well, let me show you when we were taken out of exile, when we were in slavery to the Egyptians. You've heard about that, nations. That was spread far and wide. So you want proof that our God is the great king, the most high? He delivered us from Egypt. And so the time period he's talking about in verses 3 and 4 is that time period of the exodus out of Egypt and then the conquest that God granted to his people over their enemies in giving them the promised land. He conquered and subdued the Egyptians by bringing the waters together upon them in the Red Sea and they were destroyed. And then they head into the promised land and they conquer Jericho and people group after people group begins to fall because God is giving them the victory. And why is God doing this? Why is God doing this for his people? Well, listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 37 through 39. You don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 4, 37 through 39. Remember, Deuteronomy is written because as they head into the promised land, Moses can't go. So the baton of leadership is being passed on to Joshua. And he's going to lead the people in. And this is a long sermon that Moses delivers to God's people. And he says, and because he, that is God, loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart. That the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath, there is no other. So why has God done this? To show his love to his people and to show them that he alone is God and to show the nations, the nations, that he is God and the ruler of all. That's why he gives them the pride of Jacob, this land that he loves, to let all the nations know God is the most high God and the king of all the earth. You want evidence of that? He puts all nations underneath our feet. Now, remember, God is the one who has brought all this about. God's the one who loved his people. God's the one who called his people. God's the one who subdued peoples under their feet. Yes, his people went out and fought. But they would have not been successful, and we see this many times when they go out without the Lord, and the Lord doesn't give them the victory, they're defeated. So the victory lies in the hands of the Lord. He is ultimately the one who is their conquering victor. And here's the thing. Once God has conquered the enemies of his people, what happens next? What happens after that? Well, we're actually shown what happens that next in verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. God has gone up? So what does that imply, that God has come down? Now, before we get ourselves into serious trouble, let's stop and let me pluck a potentially falsehood that might pop into your head or that might already be there, and let me confront that with the truth and hopefully it'll be removed from you. God cannot be physically located. Okay? God is not over here at one moment, and then he's over here. 
He's not up and then down, okay? God is ever-present, omnipresent. He is infinite. He is eternal. He fills all in all. There is no place that exists where God is not. And oh, how I'd like to go off on a tangent about that. But you just need to know that. So don't think that God is here and then there. Okay, well, Jason, all right, that makes sense. But then why did he go up? (laughs) If he's not physically located, then why did he go up? Well, it's baby talk for us. God is using baby talk so that we can understand him. He's using language that makes sense to us because this is beyond our comprehension. And so what's being communicated to us is that God as our king has, as it were, come down from his throne to act on behalf of his people. And we see this all throughout scripture. God comes down. And so this makes sense. Where is a king most of the time? King is on his throne. He's up. Isn't the throne almost always elevated? He is up on his throne. And then when there's an enemy confronting his people, what does he do? He comes down, he puts on his armor, he defeats his enemies, and then where does he go after he defeats his enemies? He goes back up to the throne. And this is the language that God is using so we understand. Now, this is not unique to Psalm 47. Let me show you a couple places briefly. Just write them down because it'll take too long to have you turn there. But I'm going to read them to you. The first one is Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Exodus 3, 7 and 8, this is God speaking to Moses from the burning bush. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now listen to this. And I have come down. Why? To deliver them. He's coming as a conquering king out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. What do we hear again and again through Exodus? Why does the Lord do this? Why does he bring the plagues? They're going to know, the Egyptians will know that I am God. Or think in the same vein of Psalm 18 verse 9. David's looking back on how God protected his people during the time of the Exodus And he says in Psalm 18, verse 9, he bowed the heavens and came down. He came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Last place I want to present to you is Isaiah 31, verse 4. Isaiah 31, verse 4, For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion prowls over his prey, And when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Clear enough? So God comes down to fight the enemies of his people. And then what happens after he's done fighting his enemies? God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a triumph. And so he goes back up, as it were, to sit on the throne in the heavenly temple. Now, we don't have time to get into this, and I'm almost afraid to just sort of throw it out there, because I know I'm not going to do it justice. But write this down, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15. It's actually in the cross-references in your Bible. But 2 Samuel 6, 15, what happens there? David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. 
And he's just rejoicing. He's rejoicing. And the language of Psalm 47 verse 5 in the Hebrew is nearly identical to 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 15. There's just slight changes. And why are the people rejoicing? Why does David dance and rejoice so much that he gets in trouble with one of his wives? Because this is representing to them that God dwells with his people. The ark is the representation of God's earthly throne. He dwells between the two cherubim. And yet that is a earthly copy of the heavenly reality where God rules and reigns on his throne, the heavenly temporal, over all creation. And so God has gone up with a shout after defeating his enemies. Now I hope that you're two steps ahead of me. Because where am I going to go from here? I'm going to go to Jesus, aren't I? I'm going to make a beeline to him. Do you want to know why? Because throughout the history of the church, the church has seen this psalm as pointing us towards and forwards and being a type and shadow of Jesus' ascension. When Jesus, who, to defend his people from his enemies, what did Jesus do? He descended is what we're told in Ephesians chapter 4. He descended. He took on a human nature, body and soul, and he came down. And why did he come down? He came down to defeat our enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil and pay the penalty of the wrath of God that we deserved for our sins and to fulfill all righteousness So that we can be counted and declared righteous in him. He's come down to fight our enemies. And then after he's done that. After he's lived the perfect life. Atoned for our sins. He was buried. Resurrected. Spent 40 days with his disciples. Teaching them about what all of this meant. And how they were to carry out life in the church. Then what happens? Well, let me read to you what happens. Let me read to you Acts chapter 1 verse 9. Acts 1 verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. That's the reality that Psalm 47 verse 5 is talking about. And so what has the church always confessed? What do we confess every time in the evening service, which I invite you to come to tonight? What do we confess in the Apostles' Creed? He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So the church has always believed that Jesus ascended body and soul, human nature, locally, visibly, bodily, from the earth into the third heaven, the heaven of heavens, into the very presence of God the Father himself. And so here's the thing. Do you know what the Apostles' Creed contains, brothers and sisters? It's the gospel. It's the very basics you must believe to be a orthodox Christian. And so do you hear what I'm telling you? If you don't have the ascension of Jesus, you don't have the gospel. 
If you don't have a Savior who ascends to the Father's right hand, you don't have a Savior at all. There is no good news to proclaim if a part of that good news isn't that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, here's the question you're asking. Why is that? Why is the ascension necessary for Jesus to do in order for us to be reconciled to God? Well, let me give you a few reasons here. First of all, he does this to sit on his throne as king, doesn't he? He comes and he is the promised seed offspring of David who will sit on the throne forever. He fulfills all the new covenant promises. He does everything necessary for us and our salvation. But his kingship is not complete. Yes, he's defeated our enemies, but now he must go and sit on the throne. Jesus is absolutely right, you'll be happy to hear, when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says that to his disciples before he descends. But then his ascension is necessary because that's where he is then given by the Father that authority, all judgment, all rule and authority is given to the Son and he sits at the Father's right hand, the privileged place of power, and he is the king of all the earth. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So he must ascend into the heavenly temple to take his place as king over all. Second of all, he must present himself as our great high priest to his father. That's why we read in Hebrews 9.24, For Christ entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. He didn't enter into the holy of holies in the temple or in the tabernacle. Those were just types and shadows. Those were just copies. But, so says the author of Hebrews, into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, he has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. It is finished, Jesus says, as he's dying on the cross. Our righteousness merited by Jesus' life, the law satisfied, God's wrath satisfied with his death on the cross. And then he presents himself, Jesus presents himself as our great high priest and presents himself as that sacrifice which propitiates the Father's wrath in the heavenly temple. It's necessary that he does that. And then why is it significant that he then sits down? Because you understand, in the Old Covenant, the priests never sat down. They had to keep slaughtering animals for the sins of the people. And so their work was never done. And then when he died, another priest took his place. And on and on it went until Jesus came and made the sacrifice once for all. But you see, if that sacrifice doesn't ascend to heaven, if that priest doesn't ascend to heaven, we have no good news, we have no gospel. And yet Jesus did. And here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus will have his human nature and mediate for us forever. And so we don't just have a righteousness before God initially when Jesus ascends, but for all eternity, we have our righteousness that never changes, sitting at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. Glorious good news. And why else has Jesus ascended? Because he's gone to his Father's house to prepare a place for us. John 14, verse 2. You see, Jesus' ascension 
shows us with absolute certainty, and he tells us this in John's gospel, that where he is, we will one day be. We will be resurrected with a resurrection body like his so that we can be with him. Whether we close our eyes in death before he comes or whether we're alive when he returns and then we go and be with him. And in the meantime, here's the incredible reality. Our life is hid in Christ. So says Colossians 3.3. And so that's where our mind is to be. Because here's the reality. He is our life and he sits in the presence of of God, And so in a very real sense, because by grace through faith we're united to Jesus, we are in the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and our fellowship is with our triune God even now. Do you see how glorious the ascension is? And how necessary it is? And yet, we don't think about it nearly as often as we should. And so thank God for this psalm. Because it reminds us of this incredible reality. Now here's the thing. I've got implication and applications of all of this after the second point. So the second point just falls like that. And let's go to the second point. What's the second reason that the nations are commanded by God's people to worship him? It's not just because he loves his people. But second of all, we are to praise God for he is the sovereign king who loves the nations. He loves the nations. And this is going to go much more quickly, I promise you. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. So, do you see the message that God has put in the mouth of his people to the nations? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Sing. Praise him. And why should they do that? They should do that for the same reason that we already were told in verse 2. They are to do this because, verse 2, the Lord is a great king over all the earth. And they're told the exact same thing in verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth. That's why you are to sing praises. And don't think you can get off the hook. Let me say it to you five times, says the psalmist. Say it five times to the nation. Sing praises. You owe it to him. He deserves it because he's the king of all. And if you missed it, verse 8 makes it even more clear why they should worship God. Look at verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Again, why should they worship him? He is the sovereign over not just Israel, but all the nations, all peoples. There's nothing that God has created that he can't say of it. That's mine. That belongs to me. And I rule and reign over it. And notice the second half of verse 8. God sits on his holy throne. Where is God? He's not down here fighting for us anymore. He's not down here. He's up there ruling and reigning, sitting on his throne above all rule and authority. Now, again, we have to come back to the question. Because this is the tension throughout this text, right? Why in the world are the nations commanded here to worship God when think back to verses 3 and 4? What happened to the nations? They were subdued. They were conquered. They were crushed by God's people. And ultimately by God himself through the means of his people. So remember, they're not just to 
sing praise to God out of obligation. It's not supposed to be compulsory. It's supposed to be what? With loud songs, verse 1 of Psalm 47, of joy. They're to rejoice in this. Boy, that seems like a tall order, doesn't it? Our God has completely, utterly conquered you. So be joyful about that. What? How are we to make sense of this? Well, verse 9 makes beautiful sense of this. Glorious sense of this. So let me read it to you again. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So do you see the answer? Why should the Gentiles rejoice over being defeated? Because they're being defeated and subdued is to the end that they might be brought in and made a part of the people of God, the covenant community, Israel itself. That's exactly what verse 9 is saying. Now, this should make perfect sense to us. Why? Because this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, isn't it? What's the Abrahamic promise? What's the Abrahamic covenant that God enters into with his people? Genesis 12, verse 3. It's one of the places we can go. The Lord says, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This blessing is not just for you and your family line. This offspring who's going to come, he's a blessing for the nations. And that should make perfect sense to us because let's rewind a bit further into Genesis and remember what were Adam and Eve commanded to do in the garden? They were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, to have a bunch of little image bearers and spread them all across the face of the globe from one end to the other so that God might be worshiped and glorified. And they were to do that as they submitted to his word and his rule and his authority. And they failed in that, didn't they? And then what happens? They're kicked out of the garden. And so man's not able to do this anymore. And so what's happening in the Abrahamic promise? God says, remember that command I gave you? You can't do it anymore. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to bring this about. I promise to give a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and he will bless the nations. Now here's the thing. We, we get little hints of this all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. Little hints of it that just make your heart leap. So let me read a couple of them to you. Just two. First of all, in Zechariah 2 verse 11, in Zechariah 2 verse 11, we read, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord. Not Israel, many nations in that day and shall be my people. The nations are going to be brought in. God's going to do this. Or listen to Isaiah 19 verse 25. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. Israel, one, 
Egypt, two, Assyria, three. They'll be the third. A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Oh, that's a shocker. Blessed be Egypt, my people. They were our enemies that you crushed, Lord. And Assyria, the work of my hands. Wait a minute, weren't they our enemies too? Aren't they our enemies? And Israel, my inheritance. Okay, that one makes sense to the Jewish ears. But the rest of those? And so here's the thing. If you've read your Old Testament, and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, boy, the promise and reality of the nations being brought in sure doesn't seem very prominent. It surely doesn't seem very clear. It seems a little vague and hazy to me. Well, in one sense, you would be right. Because how does Paul refer to this reality? That the nations are going to be brought, the Gentiles are going to be brought into the people of God. Paul flat out calls it a mystery. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. When you read this, You can perceive my insight. Now listen to what he calls this. Into the mystery of Christ. All right, Paul, lay it on us. What's the mystery of Christ? Well, first of all, before I get to it, you need to know this about the mystery of Christ. This is Paul saying this. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. So do you get the point? He's saying it's not that it wasn't there at all. But it's certainly not revealed with the kind of clarity that it is now to God's apostles and prophets through the Holy Spirit. Now, listen to what Paul says here at closing. He says this, this mystery, what's the mystery of Christ? It was a mystery and not very clear, but now is since Jesus has come. The mystery is that the Gentiles are now heirs. Members of the same body and partakers of of the promise in Christ Jesus. Now you guys, I think I literally just saw somebody yawn. (laughs) And we yawn because, well, of course, of course that's true. As new covenant, why would you, what's the big deal? You guys, this is huge. In the history of salvation, this is a massive turning point. I mean, that's why the early church, if you remember when we went through Acts, why the early church struggled with this so heavily. Okay, well, how do we do this? Because we know how Gentiles were supposed to come into Israel in the past. They were to submit themselves to the law of God and be circumcised if they were male and observe all the ceremonies and join with us in all the feasts and observe all the cleanliness laws. And But now that Jesus has come... And there's not a nation-state Israel anymore in the way that there once was. A theocracy, because Jesus is the true Israel, and Jesus is the true Son of God. Then how is this supposed to work? And so this is huge. And so in the history of salvation, brothers and sisters, we should be amazed at this. And so, here's what happens. Jesus shows up, and then the inclusion of the Gentiles is fully realized. Jesus makes it more and more clear. It still has to become more clear to his apostles. We see that happen in the book of Acts. But Jesus makes it clear to them even in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Let me read that to you. Remember, Jesus is about to ascend. He hasn't ascended yet. And his disciples come to him and say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) 
They're still thinking along the old party lines here. No, what? Well, he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel, just not in the way that you think. And so he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So do you see what's happening here? After Jesus has come down and defeated his enemies, and then he ascends to the Father's right hand, he, as the king, receives the promised Holy Spirit and pours him out on all flesh at Pentecost. And then what happens? The apostles are scattered and go out to the ends of the earth, and they proclaim the gospel. And scores upon scores of Gentiles are brought in. The nations are brought in to the people of God into the church. And so that's what Jesus has left the church to do. To see the promise of Abraham fulfilled by the Gentiles coming in. And so this forces us to ask the question then, so who are the true sons of Abraham? Now that Jesus has come and has ascended. Well, listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now here's the reality, brothers and sisters. That's always been the case. Even under the old covenant, do you know who the true sons of Abraham were? It wasn't those who were merely externally. What does Paul say in Romans 9? Not all those who are physical Israel are spiritual Israel. It's those who had their hearts circumcised by God's grace. And by faith were united to the coming Messiah. That's not anything new. But how were you then enfolded into the people of God? Well, you had to become a Jew essentially in practice. But not anymore. Now you come into the new covenant community, the church. But here's the thing. I don't want you to miss how this tension is resolved. So why are the nations to rejoice in God defeating them and conquering them? Why should they respond with songs of joy and gladness, clapping and submit to him? Because don't you see? The first and second points, (laughs) this is a bit of a trick. They're the same thing. God loves his people. God loves the nations. God doesn't just love one people group, one nation. His elect are scattered throughout all people groups. And so you see the conquering that they will experience is not Jesus coming and slaughtering them. The conquering is that as we go, the church sent by him, And we proclaim the gospel. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. And so as we proclaim the gospel, laying down our very lives that our enemies might hear it and believe, we see the Lord change their hearts, conquering them, subduing them under his feet, and they bow the knee and say, long live the king. And they say that with joy and with gladness. And so that's why the nations are commanded, sing for joy, because you're going to be enfolded into God's people when Messiah comes. 
And brothers and sisters, that's what's happening to this very day. And so don't you see, let's get to application. In light of these realities, Christ's ascension and the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God, we ought to rejoice. Our hearts ought to be filled with joy. Because you understand the reason you heard the gospel is because Jesus ascended, he sent the Spirit as the Davidic king, and then the apostles went out and spread that gospel, and then that gospel spread from that person to that person to that person, and eventually it came to you, and 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 to me, in the sovereign plan of God. We who are Gentiles, I'm not going to go around and ask for a show of hands if there's any ethnic Jews here. But here's the thing, we're Gentiles and we've been brought in. Don't you see that that's a sign of the messianic age in which we live and it should cause us to rejoice? Though we are not physical Jews, we are spiritually the offspring of Abraham. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I don't think we understand how we're shattering that. But we ought to seek to understand it more and rejoice. And the next, we don't just rejoice, but we proclaim. We are to proclaim this good news. Because it's for the nations. It's not just for you so that you can have peace in your conscience and now live your best life now. That's not it. It's been given to you so that you can share it with your coworkers and your neighbors and your unbelieving family members, and the people that pack your groceries up as you go to the same grocery store. Every opportunity you get, it's our calling and privilege. Jesus has left us here to open our mouths and proclaim the gospel. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. This is why we send out missionaries. This is why we send out our best and our brightest. It hurts when we send out missionaries. Because we send out those who would eventually serve as elders and deacons and shepherd many of you here. And so it hurts and we love them and we're friends with them, but it hurts when we send them. And yet we do it. And we send money to them. And we spend a lot of time praying for them. And a lot of time the missions team thinking, how can we support them? And do you know why we do this? Because that's what Jesus has left us to do. Our risen and ascended king. The promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. And so we do what Jesus left us to do in Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the king. So go therefore. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what he has left us here to do. And so as we rejoice, we are to proclaim and send and go. And lastly, I want to end where I started. 
as we're rejoicing, we are to sing, brothers and sisters. We're to sing. I don't even want to get into, I just think it's human to sing. I'm saying as the people of God, we are to sing. By the way, all image bearers are commanded to sing. Because remember, this is being addressed to the nations through the mouths of the people of God. And you may have missed this, but seven times in this psalm, God's people and the nations are commanded to sing. Do you know the significance of the number seven in Hebrew literature? It's a number that represents fullness or completeness or perfection. We have the full weight of God's command, sing. You have it twice in verse one, clap, loud shouts of joy, and then five times in verses six and seven, sing praises to our God, sing praises, sing praises to our King of all the earth, sing praises. Five times, sing praises. And so this is what we're to do. God knows how stubborn we are. God knows how hard our hearts are. And so line upon line, time after time, you just it's like a wave that washes over us. The rototill that's got to go again and again, hard and hard over this, this hardened heart to sing. And yet, what do we see? We see that this is the exact response of the disciples after Jesus ascends, isn't it? Listen to what Luke records for us in Luke 24. Verses 50 through 53. This was the disciples' response to Jesus' ascension. And he, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Okay, so there's the ascension. Now listen to how the disciples respond. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Their hearts are rejoicing. Their mouths are opened in song. They can't help but sing over this glorious good news. He's ascended as the king and he's going to send the promised Holy Spirit and this messianic era is going to be ushered in. It's exactly why Paul commands us in Ephesians 5 verses 19 and 20, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're commanded to sing. In part, what Paul's saying, we admonish each other. I have a privileged position up here. I get to look at you and see you whether you sing or not. And we're admonishing one another in song. We're admonishing one another with the truths of God's word as we sing. That's why historically some of the churches would actually face each other the way they were laid out and the seating. We're to encourage one another, but we are commanded to sing, brothers and sisters. And I love what Luther had to say about this in his commentary on Psalm 47. He says, Christ's kingdom is not one of that kind that stands in the power of arms, but in the word of praise. And in the singing of thanksgivings. How are the nations conquered? We open our mouths and we sing. We open our mouths and we proclaim. Because of the joy that is in our hearts. And so here's my final admonition, brothers and sisters. Hear this. On the authority of God's word. It is not an option for you to not sing. 
It is not an option for you to stand there and not raise your voice with the rest of God's people. I mean, unless you want to disobey. It's not an option. And it doesn't matter if you think that you don't sing well. Doesn't matter. You're commanded to sing. Doesn't matter if you don't like to sing. Doesn't matter. You're commanded to sing. Do you like to open your Bible every time? Probably not. I don't, unfortunately. But I do it anyway. And then I realize, what is wrong with me that I didn't want to do this? So open your mouth and sing. You're being selfish when you don't sing as well because we're admonishing each other. I'm encouraged to see you sing in praise to God. I remember hearing Alistair Begg say, I know that God is doing a work in somebody's life when I see someone who normally doesn't sing start to sing on Sunday morning. And it's true. But brothers and sisters, it's not an option. I don't care if you don't like the style of singing, the song choices. It's not your favorite song, so what? Unless we're having you sing heresy, at which point come and tell me so that we can repent before you and change that, or clarify for you that it doesn't mean what you think it means, Whichever is the case, it is not an option for you to not sing. We are commanded to sing. And brothers and sisters, don't you see, it's our privilege to sing. We have every reason in the world to lift our voices to our ascended king who has sent the Holy Spirit and brought in the nations, the Gentiles, which is exactly why each and every one of you are here this morning. So let me pray so that we can sing Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. One tongue is not enough. I wish I had a thousand. My great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do long to have more than one voice praise you. We long to see all the nations sing your praises. And because you have given to your Son the nations as his inheritance, we know that you will bring all of your elect in. You will not lose a single one. And we're thankful that we have been included in that number. We pray that we would be overwhelmed by your love for us, for the nations, that we would rejoice in Christ's ascension, in his messianic work, in his church, that we carry out by the Spirit all that Jesus began to do and teach. And Father, in light of these realities, may we take your gospel to the ends of the earth that all the elect would be brought in. And as we march, may we sing at the top of our lungs every step of the way. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.